0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I've endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.
1: Uh, awesome. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Second uh, Timothy chapter three, verses 10 to 17, we are studying a letter that was written by a man who was at the end of his life, and after being deserted by his friends and being thrown in prison, he now turns his attention to pen and paper to write to a young man, a young pastor named Timothy, instructing him on the kind of man and the kind of ministry that he needs to lead. And last week we, we focused on Paul's words Uh, there at the beginning of chapter 3, which were really directed at the ungodly, uh, false teachers in this church, in this church in Ephesus, who were rising up against Timothy, rising up against the gospel, preaching uh, incorrect doctrine, preaching wrong doctrine. And Paul's, uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy was, Timothy, avoid them. Don't become like them. Avoid those guys at all costs. And this week, we're focusing now on the more positive aspect, the more positive end of this uh, instruction. So if last week was the negative, don't be like those guys. This week is the more positive, Timothy, this is what you should be like. Imagine if you had the responsibility of passing on some kind of vital knowledge or some kind of uh, moral ethic to someone in the next generation, passing on some information to the next person, the next generation... How would you communicate that? Like, like maybe uh, you've been in a position where you've had to pass on a job, uh, an employment situation. You've had to put together a bit of a, a flow-on plan for the next person who takes that role on. What are you communicating that? What's the important stuff there? Or, or maybe uh, it's a bit different to that. Maybe it's a bit more relational. I, uh, a friend of ours um, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And I'm told that she actually wrote a series of letters for her children for important milestones in their life important birthdays, wedding days, when they have kids, those kind of times. She she wrote letters for her kids to be opened on those particular days. Here in this situation, Paul is at the very end of his life. He's anticipating that that death is just around the corner. And so he's writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, this is the kind of man you should be. This is the kind of pastor that you should be. This is the kind of ministry that you should lead. And so last week, when the question was, how deep does your discipleship go? That was because there was false teachers who had the appearance of godliness, but were denying its power. This week, the question is, how are we disciples? How is it that we become more godly? How is it that we become more and more like Jesus, how do we grow in such a way that we don't just have the appearance of godliness, but actually our lives are truly godly, and we're becoming more and more like Jesus throughout our entire lives. And Paul's instructions here to Timothy are kind of like a bit of a mirror image of last week. So last week he talked about ungodly people leading ungodly ministries, and this week we're talking about godly ministries being led by godly people. And we could probably uh, break this down into three points. And these are my three points this morning. Point number one, we get the model for godliness. That's in verses 10 and 11. The model for godliness. Point number two is the cost of godliness. That's in verses 12 to 13. The cost of godliness. And point number three is the source of godliness. Verses 14 to 17, the source of godliness. So firstly, the model of godliness. Previously, as we just said, Paul had laid out for Timothy the kind of ministry and the kind of lifestyle that he should not emulate. And now charting the territory forward, Paul points to himself as an example for Timothy to follow. Timothy, if you want to know what a good godly life looks like, if you want to know what good godly ministry looks like, look no further than yours truly. Now, this isn't arrogance or pride from Paul. I don't think we can say that. We can uh, can probably assume that he's just simply pointing out the value of having someone in your life who's further along in the journey of of their faith. If Timothy is to grow in godliness, it is incredibly helpful to him to have someone who can model that for him. And this is important for us too. Do you have a, a Christian brother or sister in your life who's maybe just a bit further along in their faith journey, maybe they have a similar kind of life experience to you, and you can go to them and ask them questions. You can go to them and ask for advice, get some godly wisdom from them. You can say, hey, can you pray for me in this area? Can, you, can we read our Bibles together? Can, we, can you just shed some light? Can you just in, give me some insight here? Each one of us should have that. Each one of us should be aspiring to have someone in our life who's just a bit further along, who can say, yeah, okay, this is what I would do in that situation. Let me pray for you. Let's turn to God's Word. And not only should we be looking for someone like that, we should also be aspiring to be be that person for someone else. One of the most wonderful things about a community of faith like this is just the opportunity to have people in our lives, to have, have a collection of godly wisdom, a, a wealth of wisdom that we can have from other believers in our lives. We should all have someone who is helping us along the journey and who we are helping along, along the journey as well. And, and if you don't have that, can I encourage you to, to pursue that? To contact someone here in this room, here in, here in this church, tap them on the shoulder this morning. And say, hey, grab a coffee. I'd love to just pick your brain about a few things I've got going on in my life. That'll be a wonderful thing to do. it would be a good thing for you and a good thing for your faith. This is who Paul was for Timothy. A wonderful example in the faith, a wonderful example of godliness. And so Paul points to his own life and says, Timothy, you need to emulate me. Follow me as I follow Christ, is what he said elsewhere in Scripture. And so, he gives Timothy eight specific things, which, will, which are going to help Timothy out a lot, and we're going to divide those eight things into two groups. The first three are about godly ministry, and the last five are about godly living. So, godly ministry, we get these three things here, his teaching, his conduct, and his aim in life. He says, you have followed my teaching. Now, Teaching is such a major element of this letter, such a major feature of this letter, and so it's no wonder that Paul lists teaching here as the first thing. Teaching is, is the crucial element of ministry here for Paul. Paul has already told Timothy on numerous occasions the importance of teaching, and so it's fitting here that, Timothy, that Paul says to Timothy, hey, you know, you've followed my teaching, you've seen what I've taught. The teaching in a church is an important part of that church's ministry. It's an important element of that church's identity because it functions as somewhat of a steering wheel for the life of the church. Now, it's not that teaching is absolutely everything because it's simply not, but it is a crucial element in the life of the church. This is why we believe here that the Bible should be the thing that is taught here on Sunday mornings. This is why we, have, we load our, our services of the worship up with Scripture. We want as much Scripture in there as possible. We want people to hear God's Word being taught. It's why our main diet of teaching consists of exegetical teaching where we go through books like 2 Timothy, verse by verse, looking at what this says, what this teaches us. Because we trust God's word to actually teach us. We trust God's word is the thing that is actually going to cause us to live godly lives. Because as we're going to find out very soon, all scripture is actually breathed out by God. These are his words. So the first thing is, you followed my teaching. Secondly, he says, you followed my conduct. And this is important because not only has Timothy heard what Paul has had to say, but he's seen the conduct of Paul's life. You can probably, each one of us can probably think of someone who we know who says one thing and does another. Like just think of the, the false teachers who we've been looking at for the last few weeks in this church in Ephesus. If Paul's conduct didn't line up with his teaching, Timothy would be probably one of the first people to notice. Timothy and Paul, they were close companions. Paul calls Timothy his child. Timothy would be aware of who this is if Paul's conduct was slipping from what he was teaching. And so Paul's instruction then is, Timothy, don't just preach God's word, but allow God's word to invade and impact and and guide your conduct in the world. Thirdly, he says, you followed my aim in life. Ever since Damascus, Paul had had one singular focus for his life, which was living in light of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Living his life according to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ being, being devoted to Jesus with everything that he had. He wasn't devoted to fame. He wasn't devoted to riches. He wasn't deferred, devoted to, to accolades or prosperity. He didn't seek any of those things. All of those things which he once prized, he now regards as nothing to him. Quoting from Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, "But whatever gain, uh, so, but, but, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Paul's singular aim in life. What a wonderful guy for Timothy to emulate. What a wonderful influence that Paul is on Timothy. How, How do we grow as disciples? How do we become more and more godly? Well, this is helped big time by the wonderful gift of relationships in the church. Christian brothers and sisters who can shed light on things. For us not to be isolated in our faith, but actually open ourselves up to people around us and help us to grow in our faith. So as Timothy is searching for an example to follow in his ministry, Paul says, Timothy, keep your eye on me. Keep your eye on what I've done. And then the same thing goes for the example of the godly life. And here Paul lays out for Timothy five ways that Paul is a good example of godliness in his everyday living. But we're going to actually skip the first four initially and go straight away to the fifth thing because those first four virtues are heavily framed and and, and guided by that fifth one, which is persecution and sufferings. Timothy, you followed my persecutions and my sufferings. And because Paul spends a little bit more time there talking about persecutions and sufferings, we're going to spend a little bit more time here talking about that now. The sufferings and the persecutions that Paul has in mind are particular ones. Not all of them, but particular ones. He says, those that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Now, when it came to suffering and persecution, Paul had a pretty good collection of that. Like, some people have a good collection of cards, some people have a good collection of stamps. Paul has a good collection of times that he was persecuted and beaten up and, and, and abused for the faith. But he, he chooses these three. In Antioch, we can read in Acts that persecution was stirred up against Paul and Barnabas and they were driven from the city. At Iconium, a, a plot... For a a plot to lynch, Paul was actually discovered, and Paul had to leave town. And then at Lystra, which is where Paul actually met Timothy, Paul was stoned for preaching Christ, and they were convinced that he was dead, so they dragged his body out of the city and left it, and then Paul somehow recovered, got up and went back into the city, continuing to preach Christ in the synagogue. Paul endured some very difficult times, and when you see what Paul went through, we can kind of forgive him for playing the victim card, couldn't you? Like, if he was like, oh, woe is me, poor me, we would go, yeah, that's fair enough. Like, if anybody here was to compare their sufferings and persecutions against Paul's, none of us would be able to say that. So we could probably, uh, you know, be okay. We could probably give Paul some leeway if he felt entitled to some kind of special treatment and privilege because of his suffering. How often do we do that? Like I'm shocked at my own heart's tendency to play the victim and to try and to try and see everything in light of what look at what has happened to me. I'm justified in what I'm doing here because of all these things that happened to me. I'm shocked at that. And we and we could be we could be forgiven for expecting Paul would be the same. But if you look at these first four virtues, these aren't the things that Paul that really characterise Paul's life. What does characterize Paul's life? It's his faith, his love, his patience, his endurance. These are all internal dispositions that not only have external manifestations, but they have been cultivated in Paul's life in an environment of hostility and pain. So when Timothy says, so when Paul says, Timothy, you you followed my faith, he's not talking about just faith in the good times, he's talking about faith in the bad times where it would have been tempting to give up on his faith to actually lose his faith. He also says Timothy, you followed my patience. Now we all know that you don't need patience until something horrible happens and then you need patience. This is the same thing for Timothy for Paul. He's had to be patient not just in difficult times, but also with difficult people. Timothy, you followed my love. Now Paul's version of love is not a smushy, kind of squishy love that we see in rom-coms. Paul's version of love is the kind that we learn from Jesus Christ. A selfless love, a, giving, a self-giving love, a love that sacrifices all. Paul, Paul's version of love was a way you have to love people who even don't deserve it. Finally, Timothy, you followed my steadfastness. You've seen me persevere in trying circumstances. You've seen me diligently keep going amongst ongoing discouragement and remaining gritty in a world that is unkind. Sometimes we have a fairly misguided idea of Paul that he was this bitter, grumpy old man who would have been his bonnet about some theology. I don't think that could be further from the truth. His life was characterized by a godliness that was manifested in faith, in patience in love, and in endurance. All of these are wonderful virtues, but made all the more wonderful by the fact that those virtues were blooming in garden beds of persecution and suffering. Friends, there is no doubt that our world is enduring measures of suffering right now. That's why we stopped and prayed for as long as we did this morning. But let's take this as an opportunity to actually grow in our faith, to grow in our patience, to grow in our love, to grow in our endurance, to become more and more godly. Let's see what's going on in the world around us as the invitation that it is to press into God and say, Jesus, in this moment when I'm so tempted to, to act in ways that put me at the center, help me to act in ways that put Jesus in the center. Help me to become more and more like Jesus. So that's the model for godliness that Paul gives. And this dovetails into the next point, which is the cost for godliness. So he says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, as far as sales pitches go for Christianity this is a pretty horrible one. <laughs> like, If you want to be more and more like God, I can guarantee you, you will, be, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. The Bible's pretty honest here. And if you're here and you've joined us and you're not a Christian this morning, you might be looking for some kind of belief system that will allow you to sit under the radar, that will give you, allow you to have like a normal, unflustered, uncomplicated, easy life. And if that's you, Christianity just isn't going to be that for you. I'm, I'm sorry. And ask Christians here in the West... We, had a, we have a pretty strange relationship with suffering, don't we? Like we know that what we're enduring right now is pales in significance to compared to what our brothers and sisters are enduring in Afghanistan, and yet we must not disregard the suffering that we're enduring, because there is a sinister and subtle type of suffering and persecution which Christians will, in the West, find ourselves more and more having to endure. Stephen McElpine talks about this in his latest book, uh, Being the Bad Guys. He says, Christianity is only going to be increasingly regarded with hostility as its vision of life in Jesus that we get from God's word causes us to stand in opposition to the vision of life that is offered from the prevailing post-Christian secular age that we find ourselves in. And so to that, Paul's words are incredibly timely. If you desire to live a godly life, the same kind of godly life that Paul has just announced, then you should expect persecution. Just pay attention to those those two important words: "all" and "will." All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecuted. It's a guarantee. And to add insult to injury, Paul then says that while we're pursuing that godly life, life, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Those who, who pursue Jesus while being persecuted will watch on while people, just like those false teachers who Paul has been dealing with, they will increase in their ungodliness, deceiving others with their folly and being deceived by their own folly too and from those around them. If you're looking for a life of ease and comfort, A life of love and acceptance from the world around you, or a life where God doesn't get in the way of your aspirations and pursuits, then you're not going to like Christianity. Now, this doesn't mean that Christianity is only for the strong. It doesn't mean that Christianity isn't for the weak of heart, because that's actually the opposite. Christianity is for the weak, Jesus is for the weak. Jesus is for the sinner. Jesus is for the person who is marginalized and oppressed. Jesus is is for the person who has had enough of themselves. Jesus is for the person who has been hurt. Jesus is for the person whose life is a mess. Jesus is for the person who has been busted up and bruised by the sins of others. Jesus is for the person who has been busted up and bruised by their own sins. Jesus is for the person who looks at where their life has become in dismay. Jesus is, Jesus is for the irreligious person who hates him, and he's also for the religious person who is sick and tired of trying to act like a Christian. Jesus is for the thirsty. Jesus is for you and I. I was reading this morning, uh, going through John's Gospel, and reading of the time, this moment where Mary goes to the open tomb, and it's just this like chaotic scene outside the tomb. Peter and John having a race, like... Peter didn't think they were racing, but John thought they were racing and mentions it in God's word. I beat Peter. Just this is really kind of random thing. And, and then Mary's outside the tomb, and uh, the, the other guy's leaving. She looks into the tomb, and she sees the two angels sitting there at either the end of where Jesus' body lay. And they ask, Why are you crying? And she said, Because the, someone's moved the body of the Lord. And then she turns around, and there's a, there's a guy there, and she thinks it's the gardener. And he says, why, why are you crying? Why are you, what's going on here? And she said, and presumed to be the gardener, she, goes, she says to him, maybe have you moved my Lord's body? Please let me know if you've moved him. I'll go and get him and I'll take him. And then it's, it's Jesus, of course. And he just says, Mary. And then I just stopped when I was reading my Bible at that point. I was like, oh my goodness. Like, and actually, the... the, the the Jesus storybook, but we've got some here. The way they talk about it, the way that's kind of put there is um, they just say something along the lines of nobody ever said her name like that. And it's just this wonderful moment of Mary who's just this, like if you read through the Gospels, Mary's life was, a, she was a mess. And yet here is Jesus who she mistakes for the gardener and he's calling her by name and just going, hey, Mary, He's so wonderful. Jesus is just so gorgeous. He knows our name too, not just Mary's. He knows your name too. And it's it's for that reason that because Jesus rescued Mary, it's for that reason that Jesus rescues, that Paul is able to say what he did at the end of verse 11. Now, we skipped that before because I wanted to come back to this. And maybe you're wondering what that means. He says there, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, let's just ask ourselves for a moment. Where is Paul sitting as he writes this? He's in prison. Like, you don't look very rescued to me, Paul. You look like a person who hasn't been rescued at all. But Paul knows that he's been rescued because he knows that there is a God who is above that prison. There is a God who is sovereign over his sufferings. There is a God whose word is not bound. There is a God who is over Paul's sufferings and his persecutions, working his sufferings and his persecutions out for Paul's ultimate and final good and bending the stuff that hurts Paul back on itself so that God would get glory out of it. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 1, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In in Paul's mind, they can put him in prison, they can even kill him, and that will never ever, not in a a thousand years, negate the fact that Jesus rescued Paul from every single thing that he had to endure. Paul's there not just talking about a a future rescue, that I believe that God is going to come and get me out of this prison, because the tense just doesn't allow that. With air still in his lungs and weeks still left in his life, Paul can say with confidence that Jesus has already rescued him. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then that there is true of you too. Jesus has rescued me. Regardless of whatever this last week has held. Whatever the, regardless of whatever this next week will hold whatever has caused the tears, those things are not evidence that God has done with you or done with this world or that he is disappointed with you. If you have received the grace of Jesus Christ, then your biggest problem, which is your sin in your life that separates you from God, has been dealt with. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then your biggest problem in your life has been dealt with by him. Paul can say that God has already rescued him because in the next life he's going to see Jesus face to face and he's really looking forward to that. And the reality of being in the presence of Jesus for eternity gives him a certain lens on life so that even though he's in prison right now, he can say words like, the Lord has rescued me. He's more rescued in prison with Jesus than he is outside of prison without Jesus. See, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus plus suffering is better than not Jesus and not suffering. Jesus plus suffering is better than not Jesus and not suffering. And I'm conscious that there is such a temptation for us to try and make Christianity attractive, we we have this tendency to try and make it look good for our friends to our friends, and there's been such a trend, at least in my life, of making godliness seem like not, just, not not a big deal if you follow Jesus. Like if you follow Jesus, it hardly leaves a dent on your life. You can basically become a Christian and live life however you want, uh, and, and he's just not going to interrupt you at all. That's just not at all what the Bible teaches us about following Jesus. Paul the talk could not be clear here. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think that raises a really big question for us. If that's the sales pitch, where's the good news? Where is the good news in that? How do we present the good news of Jesus that he saves us when the life that we live now is, is guaranteed persecution and suffering if we desire to be godly? How do we preach this good news to others? Well, we can look at Paul at least as, as an example who, when persecuted and when he suffered, responded with faith, patience, love, and endurance. When we suffer, we don't let, our, let go of our relentless trust in Jesus and we remain patient, with difficult people amongst difficult circumstances. When we're we're persecuted, we still love others, even loving those who persecute us, those who deserve the opposite. We still love them and we we endure, we continue doing that right to the very end. And it's through those things, it's through the evidence of, of the rescue of Jesus on our life, the salvation of Jesus Christ in our life, when that comes out in our life, that's going, to be, that's going to translate so much to the people around us that even those who are deceived and being deceived and deceiving others will see the beauty of Jesus because it's true despite the circumstances that we face. You see, suffering and persecution, they are, they are not the enemies of growing as disciples. Suffering and persecution is like fertilizer for the person who desires to grow in their faith. Do you know where the uh, fastest growing church is in the world at the moment? Not which church is the fastest growing, but which country holds the fastest growing church? Iran. Do you know what's second? Afghanistan. Like, isn't that just beautiful? And apparently, it's because Iranian Christians keep sending Christian missionaries into Afghanistan. Like, isn't that just, we've been praying for our brothers and sisters there this morning. See, persecution and suffering, they're not, that's not what should concern us in our faith. Probably what should concern us about growing in godliness is comfort and prosperity. They are probably bigger enemies, <coughs> greater, not probably, they are greater enemies right now for us in our faith more than anything else. So just to recap, Paul lays out the model for godliness, giving himself as, the, as an example. He lays out the cost of godliness, what it's going to cost those who desire godliness. Now Paul moves on to what will be our final point for this morning, and that's the source of godliness, which is God's word. Continuing on from verse 14, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as I've been studying this passage this week, I've been pretty excited to get to verse 16 and 17, because they are famous, that's a famous verse, I've been really excited about that. But verse 14 and 15 are stunning. And sometimes we can race to the more famous verses without realizing that we're stepping over piles of gold, and this is what's going on here in this. Uh, my, my hobby, my, the thing that I love doing is growing grass. Those who know me will know that's my thing, it's my jam. Um, If you come over to my house, there's quite likely a conversation, I'm going to steer the conversation towards, have you seen my grass? Um, And I'll show you that. Although right now it's got some dollar spot, needs a lawn reno. I'm looking forward to doing that actually. But I love growing my grass. I love mowing it, I love watering it, I love fertilizing, I love doing all that kind of thing. And and I get pretty excited about grass. And as a result, people often perceive me to be an expert, which, which I'm not. I'm just into it. I just like it, and so um, if you like, that's what I do on my day off. I, I go to like landscaping stores and turf farms, and just talk to them about grass, and they'll be like, to oh. so take some photos of, them and go and show them. Like, what do you what do you think? <laughs> and, um, I actually do that. <laughs> it's <a> bit, um, <laughs> now, because people perceive me to be a bit of an expert on it, they often come and ask me, "Hey, what kind of grass?" sure I have or whatever. Now, I'm no expert, so I just do say, answer as best, best as I can. But often what I find is that a lot of people, what they're asking for is, what is, they really want is lush, green, beautiful grass that doesn't require any effort. Now, such a thing, yeah, those who are building their houses right now, they're like, please let us know what that is. I've got some bad news for you. Such a thing doesn't exist. Some some turf companies will try and market theirs as being being low maintenance. But it's just always true that the more effort you put in, the better outcome you're going to get. And the less effort, obviously the worse outcome. And I fear that a lot of people have the same attitude when it comes to their faith. They want a low maintenance version of Christianity, something that doesn't cost them anything and they can neglect their faith at their leisure with no consequence. And then when... Oppression and opposition and doubts and worries and troubles and heartaches and temptations come along, they uh, have to say, Well, there must be a problem with God then, not me. If that's what you think Christianity is like, then you've probably been sold a lie. Christianity is not without hard work, it's not without its, its spiritual disciplines. It's called a disciple for a reason. Yes, it's opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And this is why Paul's emphasis here turns to God's word to continue in what he's learned and what he's believed and what his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois taught him since childhood. He's not trying to create shortcuts for Timothy. He's not trying to make this easy for Timothy. He's not promoting the latest fad. The source of godliness is not some new fad or program or paradigm. It's the scriptures which point to the glory of God. And Paul is saying, Timothy, mate, go to God's word. Paul says that these sacred writings, which is a a reference to the Old Testament, and there's evidence even here, that there's plenty of evidence actually that some of the letters that were being circulated by... At this stage, we're being regarded as sacred writings as well. And he says that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that, that's, a, that's a loaded sentence, and there's a lot there, but we're just going to identify just a few things from that. Firstly, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Therefore, you should read the Old Testament. Now, now there are plenty of parts about the Old Testament that are hard to understand, I know. But I guarantee you that if you apply yourself to them, seek a bit of help, get yourself some good material on that and give it some time and work at it, you will come to understand what the Old Testament teaches us. And you'll begin to see a beautiful story unfold about a holy God who loves his people and gave everything to have a relationship with his people. It also teaches us that the scriptures teach us that salvation is through faith in Jesus. Therefore, we should be in the scriptures all the time. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus by asking the question, how can God both judge injustice and yet forgive and absolve those who commit injustice? And the answer to that question comes to us in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't a weakening of the resolve of God's justice against sin. Jesus fully absorbed God's justice. He drank that cup dry. Which means we should be in God's word all the time. If you want to know the reality of why you need saving, if you want to know the glory of the one, of the judge, the mercy of the one who saves, and the life-changing impact that grace has on a person who has been saved, you can only get that from God's Word. This is why we've simply got to be in God's Word. And I'm not just talking about a glance at it here and then. I'm not just talking about a verse of the day that comes to your inbox and it takes you 35 seconds to read as if it waves some kind of magic wand over your life to keep you going for another 24 hours. I'm not talking about books or podcasts or blogs or articles that are about God's word. And I'm talking about a lot more than just going to church where they preach the Bible and where the gospel is central. I'm talking about a dynamic and growing relationship with God which he himself initiates and wants with us and which we cultivate through significant portions of our time and days being set aside to be in God's word. I have found that the only defense that I can put up against the doubts and the worries and the troubles and the temptations of this world is a regular, meaningful, deliberate, sacrificial, and deep time in God's Word on a daily basis. Why? Because it points me to Jesus all the time. It points me to the love of God all the time. It points me to what Jesus Christ did for me that He laid down His life for me, that, he sent, that God sent His Son to, to die in my place. Because he loves me. Like how outrageous is that? He, he loved, how outrageous is that? God, the holy God, and we've been singing songs and, and choosing scriptures this morning that, that demonstrate the holiness of God so that we can look at that and go, wow, I fall totally short of that mark. And then we rejoice when we hear the gospel of, of, of grace that God in his mercy sent his son to, to take our place on the, on the cross, to be there on our behalf. And the third thing that that line teaches us quite crucially, is that salvation through faith in Jesus is what this church needs. And I don't just mean this church here, but that church in Ephesus as well. In order to love one another in the way that we need to, we need to know that faith, that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because when you start to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, your life starts to change. The way you treat others starts to change. The way you drive your car starts to change. The way you uh, spend your money starts to change. It all becomes different. And what the church needs is people who have been made new by the power of the gospel. The church does not need people who think that Jesus Christ is just a helpful add-on to their life. Or people who think that that they need less grace than others. Or people who think that they somehow have earned the grace of Jesus Christ. The church needs people who can say with confidence, I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Because when you see just what Jesus did, to lay aside his own glory and condescend to mankind and come and demonstrate his love for us, it turns us outwards, it explodes outwards and and helps us and teaches us and encourages us and fuels us to love one another. It makes that a non-negotiable and all the more glad a person to do so. And then Paul doubles down on this last point by saying what he says in the next couple of verses, those famous words, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's, of course, a very famous line in our Bibles. A couple of things that we can draw out of this, and I'm going to spend a bit more time in this verse next week. Firstly, it says all Scripture. Not some, all. The Old Testament can seem like a Mount Everest to climb. I get that. And this is why uh, later on in the year we're going to start, we're going to do a series, maybe eight weeks or so, maybe a bit more, where we just try and cover the Old Testament narrative in one go leading up to Christmas. He also says that the scriptures are breathed out by God, which means that though, uh, though they are written by human hands and authors and retain the writing styles and personalities even of those authors, these are words that originate with God about himself as he inspired those authors to write those words, which means that the words that are written down on the books on our laps or on the screens in our hands have just as much weight in them as if Jesus came in the flesh right now and walked into this room and started talking to us himself. And not only do these verses compel us to be in God's word since it is profitable for us, but they also give us a very helpful and practical tool, tool for how to approach God's word, how we open God's word. These four things that are profitable for us, if we allow these four profits—not prophets, prophets, prophets to be a guide for how we approach God's word, we'll find that God's word comes alive to us. So what are these four things? He says, it's profitable for teaching. This this prompts us to ask the question, what is this saying? So when you open God's word and wherever we're reading from, we can ask the question, what is this actually saying? What is this actually teaching me? and, And more specifically, what does this say about God? Because it's talking a lot more about God than it is about us. That's not always on the surface. We've got to dig for it a bit sometimes. But a good question to ask as we open God's word is, What does this teach me about God? A second question comes from this idea of being profitable for reproof. And the question we can ask here is, how does this passage critique the way that I am living? If the Bible doesn't critique the way or correct the way that we're living, then we're reading it with a blindfold on. It's profitable for correction. Now that's similar to the previous question, but a bit more positive we can ask here, how does this passage correct my path? How does this passage guide me? How does this passage heal me? Because as God's word critiques our life, it also brings in God's grace to heal us. And then finally, profitable for training and righteousness, how does this passage actually train me and equip me for the week that I've got ahead? Friends, can I encourage you to be in God's word? Can I encourage you to to open God's word this afternoon when you get home and just spend half an hour just reading it? tomorrow as well and the next day be in God's word and I know I'm on about this a lot but I'm just going to keep being on about it because I don't think there's many more things that are more important than this right now I don't just mean reading books about God's word nor just reading articles about God's word nor just listening to podcasts or other sermons about God's word and I mean more than just obviously reading the 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 commentaries at the bottom of our study bibles More than podcasts or blogs, let's be a people who, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are growing by being in God's Word all the time. Now, I don't want to send you out and be like, go on, go read God's Word, all the best. I want to help. There was was many years of my Christian life where I barely read God's Word at all. And I get the impression, I know that some of us are in that boat, and I want to help. I don't want want you to be embarrassed about that. I don't want you to go, I can never actually ask for help. I want to help. And so if that's something that you need help with, I'd love to pray with you afterwards. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. It might be that we set you up with somebody else to go and read the Bible together once a week, once a fortnight, just to pick a passage and read it together and grow through that. And and in the same way that Timothy learned this stuff from his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, can I encourage you parents to read read the Bible with your kids. Teach them God's word. Maybe you're a grandparent here and you want to teach the, your grandkids God's word. Can I encourage you to do the same thing? I've got these Jesus Storybook Bibles here. We bought a few this week. And if anybody wants them, not, don't take all three. Unless, you yeah, yeah, know, take one. <laughs> come and take it. If you want to read the Bible with your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or something like that, come and take one of these. And be in God's Word. There's Bibles at the back. If you don't own a Bible, go and get one and take it home and read it. We want to be a people. We we, want to be people who are in God's Word, dependent on God's Word. Being in God's Word makes us wise for salvation. Knowing the salvation of Jesus Christ for us, that He rescued us, that increases us in godliness. And godliness is faith, practice, and love and endurance in a world that is hostile to Jesus and His followers. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others